Please take your Bibles, remain standing. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark 12, beginning with verse 13. As you're turning there, let me just remind you, this is the last week of Jesus' life here upon this earth. Uh, And so we read from verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God, We are so thankful, Lord, to to come and to sit at your feet this morning. Lord, what a blessing that that we don't have to just figure out life and um, contemplate in our own abilities the, the way that we should live. But Lord, you are gracious. You are a God who reveals himself through your word. And we pray that you would do that this morning to your glory. Lord, for our benefit, that we could follow you rather than, Lord, just the desires of our hearts or the things that the world says. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this this week I was sort of surprised a little bit when I read the statistic that 19% of Americans, that's about one-fifth of Americans, feel that it is morally justifiable to cheat on your taxes. Now, I can't say I was totally shocked by that statistic, but I was a little surprised and thought that was a little high. But this morning, we get to sort of hear Jesus' take on, is it right to pay taxes? And as we look at this text, it really sort of divides itself very naturally into a couple different ways. There's there's this uh, wicked trap that's sort of laid for Jesus, and then his wise answer to that. And I I want us to sort of look at our text this morning under those two headings. Uh, First of all, this wicked trap. Look at verse 13. We read, And they sent to him some Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now that, that word trap in the Greek is often used of catching animals or, or trapping them. So these men were intentionally acting to try to somehow catch Jesus up, sort of put him in a position where he couldn't escape. And so they did. Now, who were the men who came to them? Well, we see, first of all, there were the Pharisees. And, you know, we've heard a lot about the Pharisees, especially since we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. And oftentimes, I think people can mistakenly think of the Pharisees as they were the preachers of the day. But that's actually not true. A Pharisee was, it was a lay movement for religious reform in Judaism. So these were just everyday people like, like you and I. And they really, the movement sort of arose a couple hundred years 
before Christ was born, after the Jews returned from exile from Babylon. Uh, you remember God told the Israelites that if they obeyed, there would be covenant blessings. But if they disobeyed, there would be covenant curses. And then God promised the exile of his people if they would not repent. And, and you remember, God was very long-suffering, very patient with his people. He kept sending the prophets as, as covenant attorneys, if you would, uh, covenant prosecutors to sort of stand before the people and, and plead their case and say, this is how you have broken God's law. But God didn't say, so I'm going to crush you. He said, so repent. But the people's hearts were hardened. And so God sent them into exile. First of all, he sent the northern tribes of Israel uh, in 722 into exile in Assyria. They came and they captured the, the ten northern tribes. And then in 586, a number of years later, then Babylon came and took the Israel away. Well, the ten tribes of Israel were sort of lost to the sands of Persia, never to be seen or heard of again. But, but Judah, the two tribes, they came back from Babylon after 70 years. And, and it was sort of out of this uh, time period, this, after the exile, that the Pharisees grew up in this uh, time period. They were determined not to repeat the mistakes of taking God's law lightly. They recognized that, that the, their ancestors before them were not careful to obey God's law, and they said, we're not going to make that same mistake. And so they were determined to lead Israel to repent. Now that's a great thing, is it not? To be a humble, to be a repentant nation. But they had the idea that if they keep their side of the bargain, then God will keep his side of the bargain. That's sort of where they went uh, off the rails. You know, they thought, if we obey God, then he will never wipe us out of the land again. Now, the problem and the question that this begs is, what does it mean for us to keep our side of the bargain, right? And that's, that's the challenge. And then even if we could define that, can we do that? Well, take, for example, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, what does that mean? Well, we know that that is a day that is honoring to the Lord. It's set aside a day that God has, that he set aside from our, our earthly work and our pleasures to allow us to enjoy Him all day long and to find our pleasure in Him and from Him. But for the Pharisees, they had all the, the branches of the law defined by rules reflecting what it means to keep our side of the bargain, right? They wanted everybody to know exactly what it was they needed to do to please God. And so it ended up being a very legalistic mindset of earning God's favor. So let me just take, for example, uh, one of the passages from Jeremiah 17 that says, Take heed for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. So the Pharisees, for them, that wasn't enough. They had to define what a burden was. And so they defined a burden this way. They said a burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig. Uh, a burden is enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Uh, a, a burden is milk enough for one swallow, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a custom house notice upon, or ink enough to write two letters, a reed enough to make a pen. And the list goes on and on and on. And, and you can see, of course, in those rules, they lost the point 
of the Sabbath day. That while they thought they were seeking to please God, they actually were not. Now, I think for us, of course, our temptation is to go the opposite direction. And we say, well, we don't want to be legalists. And so we totally ignore the goodness of what the Lord says about his day. And we miss out in enjoying the Lord's day so much. And so the Pharisees were very principled men. They were sort of stiff upper lip. They were sort of religious do-gooders. So that's the Pharisees. But then on the other side, you have the Herodians that came as well. Well, as the name insinuates, they belonged to the party of Herod. They were followers of Herod. They didn't care so much about principles as much as they were concerned about power and privilege and profit. And, and they, like so many of our modern politicians, were more concerned about power and what they could get out of their office rather than in serving the people that, that they were called to serve. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians really were like water and oil. They didn't get along. Matter of fact, they hated each other very much. Uh, one person likened it to, it would be, they said it'd be like if the NRA, the, NIFL, the National Rifle Association, and PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, joined forces. You'd say, really? I, Pastor Rick, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, that's exactly what people would have said about the Pharisees and the Herodians. They hated each other that much, and they didn't see eye to eye. But the thing about the Pharisees and the Herodians is they hated one person more than each other, and that is Jesus. And so, like the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is what? My friend, right? That's what they were. They were sort of uh, cast together. They were united because of their hatred of Jesus. And, and I, you know, I think that we sometimes see that. You know, we see even, I think, today sometimes when, uh, even in the political realm, conservatives and liberals are uniting against the church. And I think we're going to increasingly see that as time goes on, um, that people can become very angry with God as they um, don't want to follow him. But anyway, these men come to Jesus and they don't start out by asking him a question. They actually start out with flattery and their hypocrisy. And I would say this, that, you know, anytime someone flatters you, your, 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 uh, your flags, flags ought to go up in your head. Anytime somebody is flattering you, beware. Now, kids, you may wonder, what's flattery? Well, flattery is when people say really great things about you. You know, telling you how great you are, how smart you are. Now, People can pay you a compliment, kids, right? They can say, you guys behave so well in church. That doesn't mean they're flattering you. But when they sort of go over the top and they just keep going on and on and on and on, talking about how great you are and stuff, you ought to be very cautious. And that's not just my word, but even the Bible says that. Proverbs and Psalms says a lot about flattery. Let me just read a couple of verses. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims. And a flattering mouth works ruin. You know, usually when someone's flattering you, they're sort of buttering you up for what they uh, want to do against you. Uh, Psalm 5, verse 8 and 9 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues that there are those that are flatter you are not your friend. And then finally, Proverbs 29, 5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor 
spreads out a net for his feet. In other words, he's setting a trap for you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Herodians were doing. They were coming to Jesus, pretending to be his friend, or at least pretending to seek advice from him. But really, they were setting a trap, hoping to catch him like a wild animal. And so we read uh, in verse 14, And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Now, is that a bad description of Jesus? No, not at all. That's actually a very flattering description and very accurate description of who Christ is. So flattery isn't necessarily false. Okay, it's not necessarily not true, but uh, they were given a great description of Jesus. He, only, he cared only what God thought of him and no one else. He, he couldn't be bought or captured by the smiles or the frowns of the people. Jesus is a man of integrity. He's free from the opinions of other people. You know, I, I think that this is something that we oftentimes struggle with in the culture in which we live because there are so many eyes upon us, right? You know, we, we are uh, out amongst people. We're connected with our phones or our computers or whatever, you know, there's always people tracking us, people always watching us. Our opinions are out there, even in print on social media. And so people can react. And so there are many eyes on us. And it can be so easy to be weighted down as we hear of the approval or the disapproval of other people. Now, I, I hear people say sometimes, you know, well, I don't care what other people think of me. And, and I appreciate them saying that, but oftentimes their actions betray them. Very rarely do I ever meet somebody who truly doesn't care about other people's opinions. We all like to be loved and accepted, and so oftentimes we are way more directed by people's opinions than what we care to. But it's only when we feel the weight of one set of eyes, that is the eyes of God, that we find true freedom, acceptance, and love. Otherwise, we're held captive by the opinion of others and what they think of us. And so these uh, religious and political leaders come to Jesus and they, you know, they flatter him, sort of butter him up a little bit, get him all grease the pole, whatever phrase you want to use. They're getting him ready so that they can sort of give him that zinger of the question. And they ask him a question that really seems unanswerable. It really has either a yes or no answer. And this is what they ask in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, to, to appreciate this question, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a weighty question just as it's printed there. But if you understand the background a little bit, there's a little bit more weight to that question even. You see, the Jews paid a huge amount of money of what they made out, whether it's in taxes or in other ways. I mean, if you think about it, a Jew would pay his tithe to the temple. Now, when we think of a tithe, we think of 10%. But for the Jew, there was actually multiple tithes. You know, uh, maybe two, three, I don't know, maybe more. I, I read different things. I see different figures and stuff like that. But to Israel and, and the temple, they paid probably, this is a guesstimate. I would say around 23 and a half, 24% of their income. It would be like those of you that I know 
who you not only pay your tithe to the church, but you also support missionaries too as well out of your budget. And not only that, but then as you hear of other people that have needs, specific needs that come up, somebody loses their job or they have some difficulty, you'll step in and you'll help them. And so there's multiple ways in which you are, are giving to the Lord through what he's given to you. And it was like that with the Jews. They were giving multiple ways. So that's about 24%. And then to Rome, they paid about 6%, which that doesn't sound terrible. But, you know, when you add it in with all of the tolls that they paid, the road expenses, there was levy, there was surcharges, there were fees. If you remember the, the Jewish uh, tax collectors who would collect money for Rome and then they had tack on their fees on top of that. Um, according to F.F. F. Bruce, who he's a New Testament scholar, he estimated that the Jews paid about 40% of their income out in taxes and fees. Now your taxes don't sound so bad, do they? All right? But they paid about 40%. But, but there was one additional tax on top of all of that that the Jews hated above everything else. And that was the poll tax. Or it was maybe referred to as the head tax. In other words, you had to pay a toll on your head just because you existed. If you were an adult, you had to pay it. It didn't matter whether you were rich, whether you were poor. It was the same cost. It was one denarius, okay? One day's work for a laborer or a soldier. And it wasn't a lot of money. Probably in today's standards, it was 100, 150 bucks, something like that. So not terrible. I mean, and that's for a whole year. So that's not terrible. But the Jews hated it. And they hated it for a couple of reasons. One reason they hated it so much is it, it implied that Rome owned the people of God. You know, it's like Rome is saying to the Jews, your head is ours, and we're going to charge you for that. So that was one reason why they hated that. The other reason is, is that the coin that they had to use was a denarius. And, and on that coin, there was the image of, of Caesar. And the inscription on the front of that coin was Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back, I think was a picture of Caesar's mother. I'm not certain about that. But the inscription was highest priest. So, in other words, this coin sort of signified that Caesar was divine, that he claimed to possess supreme authority, not only politically, but also in religious matters as well. So he was God. And so for a Jew, they would look at that and they would see that as clearly a violation of the second commandment of having no, should not make any image of God or bow down to any image. And so they saw this as idolatry and offensive to God. And so while this tax wasn't large, the, the Jews hated it a lot. So much so that in AD 66, the Jews would rebel against Rome, and Rome would come in and crush them and destroy the temple, and Israel would cease to be a nation for almost 1,900 years. It was that much of a hatred. So then the question comes in, Jesus, should we pay that tax? Can you feel the weight of that question? That, that is upon Jesus? Well, their question sounded like a pious request for direction in deciding what to do with a, a difficult ethical matter, but in reality, it was nothing more than a trap, something to, to bring Jesus down. And, and if you think about it from our perspective, Jesus is sort of stuck. You know, if he says, no, you should not pay this tax, you have the Herodians here who will then run off to Herod and tell them that there's this this rabbi out here who's leading a rebellion 
and then he'll be arrested and most likely killed for an uprise against the Roman Empire. Or if he says yes, then he would alienate many devout patriotic Jews. So no matter how he answers, it seems like he's, he's going to lose. It's a, a terrible trap that they lay for him. But of course, Jesus is the Son of God, and he knows what is going on. And so we read in verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? That word test there is the same word that's used in Matthew when, when the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and Satan tested or he tempted Jesus. He's saying, why are you tempting me? Why are you seeking to trap me? Well, let's look at Jesus' wise answer. First thing Jesus does is he asks for a denarius. Now, to appreciate the brilliance of this statement, you have to understand that any pious Jew would not be caught dead with a denarius in his pocket, okay, because it was considered so idolatrous. And so, you know, they, they wouldn't have one. And so here's Christ in the temple, and Jesus says, show me a denarius. And, and what's interesting is they do. I guess it's a little bit like if you were going fishing with a fishing buddy who used to be an alcoholic, and he says to you, hey, is it lawful to drink alcohol? And you say, well, show me a bottle of beer. And, uh, you know, so they sheepishly pull in their cooler and they pull out a bottle of beer. You know, sort of embarrassing, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot like that. They act so pious about not wanting to pay taxes with this adulterous coin. And yet they will use the coin for other things that will benefit them. So there's a sense in which they act so pious and stand, stand against this godless nation, and yet they enjoy the privileges. Now, I don't want to push that point too far, because the reality is one of the Herodians could have produced the coin, okay? We don't know where the coin came from, but Jesus is saying, in essence, yes, pay taxes. If you think it's wrong to pay tribute, then Jesus was sort of saying, then don't be part of the Roman Empire. You know, honoring God doesn't mean dishonoring the emperor by refusing to pay for the privileges of having an orderly society and police protection and good roads and courts and et cetera, et cetera. And so Jesus says to him, render, or says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, give back. That's what it means, give back or to pay a debt. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Caesar has given you so much in, in governing you and caring for you, it's only right that you would give back to him. And there's a sense where even we as Christians need to understand that we owe a debt of obedience to our government, even if it is profoundly a pagan government, that uh, that government has been instituted by God. There are some Christians who say that we can't be free to serve God unless we are free from all external authorities. And so they see themselves as having to be free from the government and do whatever they seem fit to do uh, so that they might follow God. But God says, no, I have given you the state to serve a purpose. It is there for, a good, uh, for the good of society. It's there for, to protect you, that God has given the government as a servant, and we should listen to that. One day, that government will be judged, especially if it was a a godless government and did not care for its people. Now, I want to be careful not to get off to the government thing too much, okay? Because it's not that it's not a worthy topic to talk about. I just don't want to distract us from 
from our passage. Taxes and government obviously go together, but we need to be careful. You know, um, I would I would suggest this though, just as a food for thought. Um, Samuel Rutherford has written on this a little bit more, and it would be something worth grabbing his book, Lex Rex, okay? In, in his day and time, the motto was Rex Lex, the king is law, okay? And so uh, the people were subject to the desire of, of the rule of the king, of the one who was serving. So whatever the king desired, that's what ought to be done. And Rutherford was arguing from scripture that it's actually Lex Rex, it is the law is king. In other words, we are to be subject to the law of God. So even the emperor himself or the king is subject to the law of God. And so the law is what's ultimate. It's not the king itself. Uh, now Rutherford does go on to argue we need to be careful. That doesn't mean that as individuals we can rebel against governments. But instead it should be, it should be the, the authorities that rebel against uh, a godless government, whether that be governors or police officers or whoever it may be. But here again, like I said, that's a whole nother uh, discussion. That's just something for you to consider to read. But Jesus goes on in verse 16, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, the Greek word here for likeness is the same word used in Genesis 1.26 in the Septuagint. Uh, that's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, sort of like uh, the NIV in Jesus' day, if you want to sort of say that. Uh, but in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, man is made in the image of God. All of us are. Whether a Christian or unbeliever, there's a sense in which we are made in the image of God. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that coins are not the only thing with images that are stamped upon them. Yes, the denarius had the stamp of Caesar on it, had the image of it, so therefore it ought to be given back to Caesar. But uh, we also must recognize that we have been stamped with the image of God as his people. And so, therefore, we are to give back to God that which is his. Which means, then, that we belong to God. We are his to, to serve him. You, you don't have a right to do with your body what you want to. You know, this whole notion that a woman has a right to choose to kill her baby because it's her body is to fail to recognize who made her body and gave it to her. It's not her body. It's God's body, and he has given it to her. But likewise, we must understand that the things that we have are not ours, whether it's our schedule, whether it's our family, whether it's our children, whether it's our occupation, whatever it may be, it's not ours. It is given to us by God, and, and it is his. And we give to God the things that are God's. Later on in, in Romans or Romans, excuse me, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we read, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. With all that you have, we are called to love God, to give our all to Him. 
All God wants from you, all God wants from me, is everything. That's it. He wants everything. The Bible says, Romans 12, 1, that we are called to be a living sacrifice to God. But as, as the Bible talks about these things, it's not asking us to simply give something to God. Sometimes when we think of offering something to God or being a sacrifice for God, we think, well, we need to give him something. We need to, to give something up. We need to forfeit something to him. But that he doesn't just want something. He wants us. He wants everything. And so the question this morning is, do you see, do you recognize that you belong to God? Do you? Do you recognize that? Do you acknowledge that? Are you okay if God messes up your schedule this week? You just go, okay, it's the Lord's, it's okay. Or is it something where you get terribly irritated because everything's aren't going the way that you want it to go? If God, with his finger, steps in and turns your life upside down and the doctor says you have cancer, are you okay with that? Because everything belongs to the Lord. Do you truly hold everything in your life, including your life itself, as an open hand before God to say, it's yours, Lord, whatever you want? You see, he wants children devoted to him. Brothers and sisters, we, we cannot outgive God. We who are rightly destined to the fires of hell and torment for all eternity, we who instead had our sins pardoned by the blood of God's Son, we who didn't simply escape punishment because of what Christ has done, but because of what Christ has done, we are brought into God's family by God himself, loved by him, changed, sanctified to be like Jesus Christ, free to commune with God for all eternity. How can we give back to God the debt that we owe? And the answer is we simply cannot. But we can render to God what is God's. We can give ourselves to him, not to pay him back in some way, but to render to him. Christ has restored and renewed the image of God in us. I mean, think about that from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it goes on to say that Christ is the head of the church. And so that those who are in the church now bear Christ's image as our head, which is the very image of God. But then if you look over at Colossians 3, it sort of confirms this. It says that as Christians, we have put, all, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3.10, renewed in the knowledge of after the image of its creator. You see, it says that if Christ is our Lord and our Savior, then God's image is being renewed in us. And that makes sense. I mean, every person bears the image of Christ, of God to some extent. But as we are made new in Christ, we see that image more clearly. If Jesus is the perfect image of God and we are united to Jesus, then God's image is again at work in our lives. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism as it's 
the language is it uses it talks about sanctification right of that growing to be like christ it it says that as christians we are being renewed in the whole man after the image of god in other words we can only really begin to render to god what is god as christ is working in us as christ renews god's image in us we again see that we belong to God, we begin to desire to give back to God that which is God's, which is ourselves. We want to give ourselves to Him. You know, oftentimes, I think we think when we give something up, there's a loss in our lives. But when we give ourselves to God, we gain great things. We realize that we don't belong to ourselves or to Satan, but to God. And God becomes our Lord as we are brought into his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from this, man looks only to exalt himself, as we see that Caesar did in our text. But when Christ is in us, we are enabled more and more to render to God that which is God. That's true restoration and freedom. You know, saints, as we, we come this morning... Jesus really is commanding a couple of things here this morning. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But he's also uh, commanding us to render to God's what is God. Now, how do we do that? Well, let me suggest just a couple things in closing. First of all, we are in this world, and there is honor to be given to those who are in authority over us. Scripture calls us to be good citizens of the kingdoms of men. And that's not just regarding political things. It means fulfilling whatever obligations you have in this world. It does include political things. So politically, it might mean voting or doing jury duty or, or just keeping the laws of the land, being a good citizen, not being one that you, the police officers see you and they go, oh, that one again. It's not that. Financially, it might mean faithfully paying off your debts. Culturally, it might mean honoring those in positions of honor. Socially, it might mean doing your part to make your town a better place. I think it's interesting, someone asked Martin Luther uh, what he would do if he knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, and he said he would plant a tree. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the answer I would have given. <laughs> okay, but he said I, I would plant a tree. You see, because he understood that the ordinary, everyday things we do in our world are part of the way that we render things to Caesar. He understood that that is part of obeying God. And so Jesus has called us to render to Caesar what's Caesar's. And we too must fulfill our obligations as citizens and members in society. But we must also render to God what is God's. Um, that means we recognize that we wholly belong to God. Now I would love for you just to think about that this afternoon. I've had all week to think about that. And I have to say it's rather sobering. It's not that I don't want to wholly belong to God. I, 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 I would probably struggle with that if God required that of me today. But there's a sense of excitement of wholly belonging to God. But there's also sort of a, a conviction that that's not where my heart is. That too often it's my money and it's my time and it's my grandchildren or my kids or my career, or whatever it is, rather than wholly giving that to God. And I can't help but think, what would our lives look like 
if we gave ourselves wholly to God to say, Lord, I'm yours, whatever you want me to do. I think the first place to start when it comes to rendering to God what is God is called faith and repentance. If, if you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been the master of your own destiny, then I encourage you to understand that you are a sinner in the sight of God, needing his forgiveness. But because you are a sinner, there's nothing you can do to earn his forgiveness. Only to trust that what Christ has done for you on the cross would pay that debt. And that as you come humbly before him and ask for his forgiveness, he is a God who will forgive. And not only forgive, but make you a new creature and change your heart where you would desire to follow him and to give your heart wholly to him. For those of you that are here today that are Christians, really for everyone, I think the question is what really matters to you this morning? What really matters to you this morning? I don't want you to hear, I don't want to hear what you think matters to you this morning, but what really matters to you. If I were to follow you around in your life this week and see the things you do and the place you spend your time and the place in where you spend your money and the things that you guard and cherish, what would be... What would matter to you? What is the greatest and most glorious thing in your life? And if it's not God, if he is not your treasure, then we will be secretly reluctant as we give anything to him. As we have to give our time, our talents, our treasures to him, we will either view it as a waste of time or at least as something that we had to give up. I had to go do that. I had to, to give this to God. There's sort of a sense of loss that I've lost something. Because if God is not truly our treasure, then what, whenever we want and whenever we have to give something up to him, we really secretly oftentimes want to keep that for ourselves so we can give it to that which we do truly love. And deep down inside, we would rather be keeping that treasure for ourselves so that we could serve that which we love. Well, like Jesus typically does, when, when the religious and political leaders ask him this question, he takes it and he goes deeper, and, and he goes to the issue of the heart, and he's really asking us this morning, what is your treasure? What do you love above all things? What do you guard above all things? Do you realize that? There are things in your life that you work everything else around that. That if something threatens that thing, you will move heaven and earth to make sure that that is guarded. And that could be our kids. It could be our family. It could be my life. It could be my career. You know, it, it could be many things. But it really is nothing more than an idol if it is not God. So what do you guard above all else? When you give to God, do you feel like you're giving something up where there's a loss? Or is there a sense of joy and, and just gratitude as you give to him? As you're just thinking, oh God, thank you so much that I could come and I could serve in your church in this way. Or Lord, thank you so much 
that I could help this person out that's needy. What a joy this is. You have given me so much. God, I cannot believe you would give me the opportunity to show such, show such love to someone else. Thank you so much. And there's not a sense of loss, but a sense of gain, a sense of gratitude, a sense of joy because what he has done. And, and as you realize that you completely belong to God, you'll begin to see that there is nothing that he cannot ask of you. He, he demands our complete allegiance. But don't be scared by that. Rejoice in that. There is freedom in that. Rejoice that you are part of his kingdom. To belong to God as one of his own means that though the, the kingdom of this world will pass away, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that can separate you from Jesus Christ. Amen? How glorious that is. He will, he will carry you through the day of his return. And on that day, he will finish the work of your life and he will complete the restoration work in your soul. It's on that day that the image of God will be fully restored in each of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's take just a, a few moments of silence and let's, Let's just silently reflect upon the word that we have heard preached and, and, and feel free to respond to God silently as is, is appropriate. Oh, glorious and gracious God, we, we praise you for your salvation that you have given to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your love and, and the work that you have done and are doing in our hearts and in our lives. Oh, God, we can never outgive you. But, Lord, I pray that we would desire to give you our whole being. Oh, Lord, please work in us. Show us, Lord, those things that we are holding on to, those, those areas, those, those parts of ourselves, Lord, where we say, that's mine. And set us free, O oh God, from such adultery. That we might live and walk in the newness of life <coughs> that we have in Jesus Christ. Of course, Lord, I pray for those that may be listening today that do not know you. I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to work in, in the inner being of them, that they 
would understand the words that are spoken today and that God, that they would give their hearts to you. Lord, we thank you. Help us, we pray, to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to render to you, O God, what is yours. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.